Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, I'm Dave Hendon. And I'm Michael McMullen. Welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast, episode 148. Uh, this week we'll be going through your emails and we'll be discussing the big issues, such as tour cards for players from the women's circuit, time-wasting, etiquette in snooker, pocket sizes, and the big one, the colour of referees' jackets. Mm-hmm. Um, so all that's to come. But first of all, uh, I was just uh, we, we sort of, a regular theme in the last year has been snooker in popular culture. And uh, I was literally this morning just watching, there's a drama on ITV called Unforgotten, uh, which is very, very good. It's a sort of detective thing about historical crime. And there was a scene in this episode last night, um, which I ju- I've just watched this morning, um, set in a snooker club. They go and interview this retired detective. Um, and I, I was, I, the scene is interesting enough, but I was, I was fascinated by what was happening on the table. On the table, right, there's about seven reds left. Every colour is on its spot. Now, you, you've been to enough snooker clubs to know how very, yeah, unlo- yeah. How very, very unlikely that would be. I mean, it's unlikely in a, in a sort of proper match, but in a snooker club. And this old boy, no offence to him. I mean, he's a fictional character. What does he care? Uh, he didn't re- necessarily look like a world beater. But anyway, that's uh, another one for the list. But anyway, we're not here to, to, to rubbish ITV's drama output uh, because, of course, it's been announced that the World Championship will be a pilot event with crowds. Um, waiting to see how many and how it'll work. I know a lot of people, obviously, who've bought tickets are really desperate to find out the, the, the small print and the information. There's not one obvious issue is that the hotels don't actually reopen in England until May the 17th. So accommodation is not going to be necessarily easy to come by for the fans, but I'm sure many of them will find a way. And it certainly will be a better atmosphere with people, people there. There's the obvious fear as we had with last year that, you know, if something happens during the event that could imperil the whole tournament, but it must be said WST have done a very good job so far on all this. And I know spectators went last year because there was I think three days with fans last year. We're very impressed with how it all worked. The testing has changed. You can get tests now that get the results back very quickly. So I'd imagine that's going to happen. But uh, we were just chatting before we started. It's going to make a big difference, isn't it, that? Oh, yeah. If it's a pilot event, does that mean Ali Carter gets an automatic place in it? There it is. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> okay, now we've got that out of the way. Yeah. yeah, look, I can only echo all of that. Whatever about people might object to it on public health grounds and they might think it's all too soon or whatever and they're perfectly entitled to that view and... 
there's a lot of validity to that, perhaps. But looking at it from a purely snooker point of view, I mean, how can anyone possibly think this is anything other than fantastic news? You know, we've had finals all season, big events, the UK Championship, the Masters, the other two Triple Crown events, Dave, and with yeah, nobody again, there. Again, not me, not me. I didn't say it was you. <laughs> anyway, and, you know, it's, of course, it was completely unavoidable, but it was just almost sad to see, really. Now, thankfully, we got great stories out of both of them, which made up for it. I think a World Championship final with nobody there would have been even worse because it's going to be played in the Crucible. So you would literally have whatever it is, 986 empty seats and nobody's there to see if it's a first time champion, the crowning moment. That's the best moment of your whole career when you become world champion for the first time. Um, It would have been so, I don't know what the word is, deflating or something to see that. And now it looks like that isn't going to happen. And uh, how can anyone think that isn't great news? But I mean, it's, it's very true what you say that, the hotels aren't going to be open. So that means one of two things, either basically it'll have to be pretty much people from Yorkshire and the surrounding areas, or people will have to prepare themselves for extremely long journeys home afterwards. But I think the people who get to the world final, particularly if they're one of only 300, will regard it as a small price to pay if they then have to get in their car afterwards and drive through the night to get home. So what a difference it's going to make to the world championship. Wonderful news from a snooker point of view, 100%. Yeah, I don't know if the whole Airbnb thing is even still a, a thing at the moment. I I'm not sure about that. But like I say, the, the hardcore will find a way of getting there for sure. Um, it's also been announced that the qualifiers have been extended by two days. They now start on the 5th of April. And someone actually pointed out that's also Bank Holiday. That's Easter Bank Holiday. Yeah. So, so Bank Holiday Monday to Bank Holiday Monday. It's now a 27-day event. But it's basically a month because there's two days in that where there's no snooker. But, of course, one's the first-round draw day, which is full of excitement. And then that Friday is essentially Christmas Eve for snooker fans. Everyone's just looking forward. There'll be media stories, everyone gearing up for the Saturday. I've got to be honest, I kind of felt it was coming around a bit too quickly. But now I am very much in sort of world championship mode we've got the tour championship next week which is all best of 19s every day um the qualifiers though are the same format as last year so it will be uh, three rounds of best of 11 and a best of 19 in the final round i mean i would much prefer i think most people would uh best of 19s all the way through sure um, but you know i guess compromises have to be made it's a bit of a shame that but anyway the crucible is, is you know coming towards us is a month away now actually um so just thought you know obviously we'll refine these choices when we get the draw we see who's actually there who's playing who but i just thought at this stage we would just throw around three names each our early choices to be world champion all fun don't take offense anybody uh i'd be surprised if this name isn't on your list my first choice is judge trump as long as any explanation needed for that he's playing great snooker all year uh my second choice which may change um based on actually what happened yesterday is ronnie o'sullivan um mm. it would be possibly the most Ronnie thing to do to just sort of saunter in having not won a title all season, which he hasn't so far and win it again. Um, I wonder if the crowds though coming along, that may change the dynamic. He seemed to prefer it there last year without any yesterday at the pro series. If as we finished bottom of the group, which seemed to be harder to do than to win it for him. I mean, he's eight man group, you know, he's the best player in it. I know they're only best of threes. There's all sorts of things going on uh, yesterday. I just wonder if I, I kind of, I think Ronnie fans might, understand what I mean by this, is, is a sort of pre-crucible implosion coming? We, we, we will see. Maybe next week, I think, be interested to see not just how he plays next week, but how he kind of is in himself. Maybe yesterday he just thought it was a bit of a waste of his time. And anyway, the third name, and it's the man Ronnie beat in the final, Kyra Wilson. He's had a very good season in terms of consistency. He won the Championship League, hasn't won anything else, but he's always seems to have sort of been there in quarterfinals. 
Um, his scoring has been excellent. He's second only to Trump on in terms of centuries this season. And most important to me, he's a crucible player, Kyron. He's got that, men- that mentality. He's a sort of player, he can play badly in a session and come out of it 4-4 rather than 6-2 down. And then if he wins a session, you know, plays well, wins a session at 6-2, he goes off into the distance. So they're my choices, Trump, O'Sullivan and Wilson. Uh, I would say non-controversial, but uh, over to you. Over to the you. thing is, though, is it a good thing to be described as a crucible player? Because you think back over the years, Matthew Stevens was always described as a crucible player and he never won it. Barry Hawkins has been described as a crucible player. He's never won it. So it, it's it's sort of like... It's the new curse. It's the new crucible curse. It's the new, oh, well, listen, <laughs> one, one curse of the crucible is enough. So it's just a thing. And you, you wonder, with those players, is there an element that it gets in their head a bit? I think with Barry Hawkins, it definitely did. Uh, the year he was in the semi-final against Mark Williams, the fact that he'd been knocking on the door for some time, probably felt this was his best chance to win it. And you know, just really struggled to get over the line and ultimately didn't get over the line in the semi-final. And there may have been an element of that with Matthew as well in some of the matches he played towards the end of his crucible time. So we will see. I'm not saying it's necessarily a bad thing, but to be described as a crucible player, that's basically someone who plays, tends to do better at the crucible than he does well, on average in other tournaments. Well, that's not my meaning of it. I'm, I, I, I would compare him to someone like Mark Selby, who is... You would fancy again in a, if he plays not at his best. John Higgins plays not at his yeah. best. He could still get, um, you know, out of a session for each. Whereas a player who has less to kind of um, rely on or can't sort of go down the layers of his game would just mm-hmm. lose six two and probably lose the match heavily. Anyway, your three players. Yeah. So Judd Trump, obviously. I mean, it's a bit of a Stephen Hendry nineteen ninety two scenario, isn't it? <laughs> Won the world championship in a in a blaze of glory. Uh, went out in the quarterfinals the following year, having had a really, really good season. But then, as we know, 12 months on from that, he went back and uh, did, miraculously in the circumstances of being so far behind in the final, did end up winning his second world title that so many people had expected him to do the year before. But, of course, he fell victim to the curse. But anyway, that's a whole other story. So, I mean, you absolutely have to have Judd in your three. I can say here and now, whatever happens at the Tour Championship, he will definitely, definitely be my pick for the championship this year. Um, you've got to have John Higgins. Um, because, again, he's a crucible player. Uh, you look at his record there, you know, he's risen, I'm, I'm contradicting myself a bit here, but then you see, I mean, he's been such a great player everywhere he's gone throughout his career that you wouldn't describe him as a crucible player. The fact that he's won four world championships is just entirely in line with what a good player he is. I mean, considering how well he played at the Players' Championship and the fact that he's been in the final three times in the last four years, absolutely have to put him in there. And then the third name, I guess I'm going to pick Neil Robertson. I know he's not exactly been on the greatest of runs recently, but he's such a good player that you you would never be surprised to see him suddenly just turn it on again. And he's just someone who I feel isn't going to end his career as a one-time world champion. And that's just a hunch more than anything else. I I hope you're right. I'd love to see Neil win it again. I do fear, though, we could be, you know, We've kind of probably said that would have said the same two years ago. Um, mm. He's still got to win another one. Listen, we'll see. The key thing is the draw. I mean, we haven't got that yet. That'll be two days before the, the crucible starts. And it's worth saying, Judd Trump seems to always make a meal of his first round match. They yeah. always seem to be yeah. 10 9, 10 8. He usually wins them, doesn't always. Um, and to me, it would not surprise me at all if he lost in the first round. But if he got through the first round and got into those best of 25s, I could see him absolutely cutting a swathe through the whole event. Um, but that first round is massive. And that's why, of course, we will revisit this when the tournament actually 
uh, gets in the way. Hopefully, we'll do a qualifying preview. Then we'll do the mm. pre- preview of the world final stages. That's all to come in coming weeks. Now, you're going to introduce a new feature. Because, uh, I mean, we've got all these competitors now, all these other podcasts. So we need to keep on, you know, keep on re- refreshing the act. And uh, well, our game, yeah. yeah, over to you. Yeah, well, I just thought we should do a thing called In This Week. And it's where we'll pick something each week. Well, I say we, you've decided to pass the duty over yeah. to me each week. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we'll pick something that happened in this week, X number of years ago. And we'll just, well, as I said when I suggested it, riff on it for a few minutes. Mm. So um, this week, uh, for this historic first installment of this, I'm going back 34 years ago this week. And <laughs> uh, we're going to talk about the old World Cup. Now, we say the old World Cup might sound like a strange thing to say when there still is a World Cup, but it was a very different event back in the 1980s. There were only eight teams in it and there were teams of three. So 34 years ago, uh, Ireland were going in looking for a hat trick because they'd won it in 85. They'd won it in 86. And there was this strange practice at that time to make up the numbers because they couldn't have a South Africa team because of apartheid reasons. They used to let the holders have a B team. I think what usually happened, actually, was that the holders would play the B team from the same country in the first round, which kind of took away a bit of the sort of international feel of it anyway. Anyway, that was what happened in 87. Uh, It was the same team, Alex Higgins and Dennis Taylor, together with Eugene Hughes from Dunlera in South Dublin, uh, who was obviously by far the least well-known of the three, but a very, very good player. And they won it for the third year in a row, beating Canada in the final. And I mean, Alex Higgins in that time was, was... had an extraordinary record in that event. I think during those three years, he played something like 26, 27 frames and only lost four of them. You wouldn't have thought of him as someone who'd be a team player. But in those years, he was. That was to change quite dramatically behind the scenes uh, a few years later at the World Cup when his career perhaps reached its ultimate low point, as we've discussed a number of times. But the thing about it is it was it was actually very unfair because they always had this problem in those days because they only allowed professionals. It was teams of three um, so as I say, they used to have this practice of a B team, but after they'd won it in 87, it was decided, well, actually next year we're going to split it. We're going to have Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, which I actually thought was, was a better way of doing it rather than having a B team. But I think they should have allowed them the chance to defend the title in 88 rather than just split them up straight away. Um, and as it turned out, Northern Ireland and the Republic both got beaten in the first round the next year. The thing about that that World Cup this week, 34 years ago, there was an extraordinary story surrounding the England team because they were playing, I think it was Scotland in the first round. It was an evening match. Steve Davis and Tony Mio went to the races that afternoon at Cheltenham because it was Gold Cup Day. Now, bear in mind, Cheltenham and Bournemouth, it's quite a long way to go. I think they were filming some sort of video or something um, on the day. But of course, then it absolutely chucked it down with snow. So they ended up having to be airlifted from Cheltenham to Bournemouth in time for the match that night. But that just seemed extraordinary to me that you'd be playing that night. And it was a reasonably big event. It was shown on the BBC. Um, and you wouldn't, uh, you know, that you would do something like that, that you'd take a chance like that. Anyway, they got there in time. They beat Scotland, including Stephen Hendry, who was very young at the time that evening. And uh, then I think they lost to Canada in the next round. But it's one of those events you look back on. You know, with so much fondness, if you were just getting into snooker at that time, there was that great run just coming up to the World Championship where in back-to-back weeks, you'd have the World Cup and the Irish Masters. And it was a great run for that Ireland team uh, for those three years, culminating this week, 34 years ago. Yeah, the World Team Cup for, for, on sort of BBC it was like a sort of palate cleanser for them between mm-hmm. the, the, the Masters, which is sort of typically February time, Obviously, the World Championship in April, it sort of fell between the two, usually about four days long, didn't have states welcome. You got to see lots of different players. You also got to see players who you wouldn't necessarily see. I mean, the Scotland team back then, 
apart from Hendry, I guess Murdo McLeod was was involved. Um, Matt Jim, Gibson Jim, is the other one. Jim, not Jim Donnelly, no. No, that I think yeah. he did play, but that right. year it was uh, Murdo McLeod and uh, and Matt Gibson and Hendry uh, wasn't actually the highest ranked player on the team. And credit, I think Murdo McLeod, he was actually mm. just outside the top sixteen. Hendry hadn't had time to climb the rankings yet, but he was clearly by far Scotland's best player already. And um, yeah, well, they they did go on, of course, with him and John and Alan to win the World Cup and the different guys some years later in '96. Eugene Hughes, you mentioned there, um, very very good player. I mean, and also very influential because when Ken and some of the other Irish guys, when they were young, came over uh, to Essex, he actually looked after them. He was over yeah. there already. They played at Ilford, and he was sort of a bit of a father figure to them. But there's a, a I mean, talk about eighties. Okay, there's a there's a YouTube video of Dickie Davis introducing the Hot Shots at I think the International. It might have been the one Neil Folds one, nineteen eighty six. Um, and then so he introduced the Hot Shots, and then. It cuts to an interview with Dickie and Eugene Hughes walking around Trentham Gardens. Um, just fantastic stuff. I mean, it's one of those things, you know, this is kind of like the Mary Rose being dredged up. This is for, for snooker fans. Uh, at, the, at the time, he looked like he was sort of set for the top 16. He never quite got there, did he? But um, I think he got to 18 was the highest he yeah, got. So he was nearly very, beat, very close. Nearly beat Joe in 87. Joe Johnson, yeah. first round world championship, 10-9. Um, and would have been regarded as maybe the hardest draw a Joe could have got. But yeah, a terrific, uh, terrific player. And I mean, you have to have a certain personality, I guess, to fit in with, on the one hand, the firebrand, Alex Higgins, and the other hand, Dennis, who's kind of the ultimate pro, isn't he? Of course, famously, I think people, well, maybe not everyone does know this story, 1990, the World Cup, they were playing with Tommy Murphy, that, as you say, was a Northern Ireland team. And that was the occasion where... Alex threatened to have Dennis shot. I mean, that's a, that's what happened. He threatened to, he mm. said, if you come back to Northern Ireland, I'll have you shot. They were playing in the same team at the time. Um, and then, of course, not too long after that, as you'll know, they played at the Irish Masters in the, what I imagine was quite a febrile atmosphere. <laughs> mm. well, the, the thing about Eugene as well, actually, uh, just while we're talking about him, I played at his club for a while because, as I say, he's from Dunlera, which was very near where I grew up. And he ran a place, I think it was called the Workman's Club uh, in Dunlera, uh, which is a little town by the sea. And um, I went along and started playing there and um, I got chatting to him. I think it was pretty much the first time I went along. And he was actually, he used to play in a lot of the professional billiards tournaments. Yeah. And I mean, I, I was only just, I think I was, I was only finishing up in school around that time that I went there. So I literally don't think I'd ever met a professional snooker player before. And so I thought this was fantastic. The chance to talk to someone I, who I'd seen playing on the TV, as you say, he'd played at the Crucible. He'd had all that success with, with the world uh, team as well. And um, we were chatting away and, you know, he was surprised to find someone so young who knew so much about the game. But then we, when we moved on to talking about his professional billiards career, I think he was, I almost could have knocked him down with a feather when I started talking to him about what was coming up in the Gold Flake series, which was <laughs> a series of events in India. Like, literally, like his own family probably didn't even know no. that he played in such a thing. Uh, but I think that was around the time he was finishing up his career. But as you say, very, very good player who didn't quite make it to the top 16, but got very, very close. And I think you mentioned that international. I think it was the year that Neil won it. In fact, I think he beat Eugene, didn't he? 9-8 in the semi-final. So think about that. He was a frame away from playing in a big ranking final, uh, which was being shown live on ITV. Well, probably live anyway. So, yeah, just I don't want to make it sound like a bad thing, but he was sort of a nearly man. But, you know, mm. to be a nearly man in terms of nearly getting to finals and nearly making the top 16, you have to be a very, very good player. And he was. 
Yes, indeed. And of course, the Gold Flight uh, Masters. Uh, if you in the Gold Flight Masters, if you made a ninety-nine, you got a prize. There we go. Thank no, you very, very much. Goes. Thank you. It was actually uh, a cigarette brand, but anyway. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> now I don't want to. I'm not. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but uh, I, I actually because I do my on this day Twitter account, which um, oh, yeah. people may follow. And uh, eighteen years ago today, Ronnie O'Sullivan beat Stephen Hendry. As we record this, beat Stephen Hendry in the European Open final in Torquay. Now this was not televised. This was. This was a, and we'll come to this later because someone's asked a question about sort of snooker administration. But this was a time where things were not going great. It's fair to say, and the European Open. I mean, Britain was still in Europe at the time, but um, it was in Torquay, not televised, but played in a hotel. I mean, he, the jokes wrote themselves. And mm. Actually, forty thousand on BBC One last night. But anyway, that's a, that's a side issue. Um, fantastic final, five centuries, load of other breaks. But what I remember about it was. Um, and we watched it. They they hooked up a webcam. It wasn't streamed to the public, but we watched it in the press room on a webcam. But Ray Reardon and Tony Knowles had come down to present the prizes. And they were quoted in the paper the following week saying, local papers saying, they said, oh, the journalist said, what a standard it was. And they said, well, yeah, but, you know, there was no tablecraft. Oh, they, yeah. they, they wanted all these, like, half-hour safety exchanges. Never mind, never mind your centuries. That's what we want. So, anyway, that was 18 years ago. Now, we've got a couple of emails, both suppose on relatively controversial issues john evans from worcester writes apologies if this has been covered before but what are your thoughts on the phasing out and eventual sacking of clive everton by the bbc back in 2009-10 at the time at the time i wow. sent an, at the time i sent an agreed email to philip burney then and current head of sport to complain about the obvious ageism on display i was absolutely disgusted and made my feelings known surprisingly i did get a response unfortunately uh, john hasn't hasn't supplied what the response was. I'd be fascinated to know. I imagine, I imagine, uh, John, it was just weasel words, which is normally what you get in these circumstances. Um, yeah, well, he, I mean, obviously, listen, I'm, I'm very close to Clive, but regardless of that, I thought it was an absolute outrage um, on, on, a, on, on, on the basis that what had he actually done wrong? You know, no, it, nothing had happened. He hadn't d- done anything wrong. It was just a kind of decision based on, well, we still don't really know. You mentioned ageism. I think that possibly was something. I think there was a certain sort of fashion that it was going away from that kind of broadcaster towards all having players and in that in inverted commas characters. Um, he'd been the voice of snooker for many years. He he, what he brought to the coverage was great integrity, great uh, impartiality, um, and just did the job well. And I think that's why he was aggrieved. And if you want to read his grievances, they're well documented in various uh, places. But why shouldn't he be? I mean, the fact is, he worked for them for 30 years. He was taken into a corridor at the Masters and told, sorry, Clive, after the World Championship, you're out. I mean, it's amazing to me. You know, there was an advert on last night before they were uh, doing another mental health documentary on the BBC, all all very laudable. But what about the mental health of the people that work for them? Mm. (laughs) You know, he'd done nothing wrong. And what, what was interesting was when ITV, it was a few years after that, two or three years after that, they came along and they started. They, I think it was the World Open in China was their was, first, yeah. first sort of go at snooker. And they went straight to Clive because they recognised he is a recognisable voice of snooker. He's going to lend our coverage credibility. And they actually said to him, you know, who do you want to commentate with? And he actually went for Neil and Alan. That's how they started. So, But they understood if we want credibility coming back into snooker, we go to the best in the business. So they recognised it. He worked for Sky as well. Um and various other people, but yeah, with the BBC, it's still a bit of a mystery exactly what happened. And you know, Clive, I'm not sure has ever really got to the bottom of it. But that's my opinion. I thought it was disgraceful. Well, I mean, who thought it was a good idea? You know, <laughs> if you think of any controversial issue, especially nowadays with Twitter and everything like that, even if you know one view is 
so obviously the right view to have, which in this case was that Clive should have stayed on. You know, you can always find someone who will take the yeah. opposing view, someone who will want to be different or someone who genuinely has convinced themselves, no, I actually think this really is a good idea. I don't remember anyone, certainly among the general public, the snooker press, the players, anybody who didn't think this was a really, really bad thing when Clive stopped commentating on the BBC. There's this debate that goes on all the time. Um, you've got, on the one hand, there are two different types of commentators, basically, across all sports. You've got people like us who come from a journalism background. You've got pe um, people like, say, Stephen Hendry, Alan McManus, Neil Folds, who come from a playing background. Clive was able to merge both of those because he was in that unique position that he was actually basically a full-time journalist and was also a professional snooker player. So, you know, it was just a winning combination. And you might wonder, well, how good a combination, you know, can that, can that be? I mean, you know, it just sounds like the absolute ideal. And when you actually heard Clive commentating, you realized it was because he was coming at it from having the perfect technical knowledge of the game and also the journalistic instinct as well. So he was absolutely magnificent. I, I mean, honestly, I would struggle to think of anyone who, in his prime, in any sport, was a better commentator than Clive was on snooker. Yeah, and um, look, no one has the right to go on forever, but the way it happened, I mean, you know, at some point, everyone is going to have to move on, but the way it happened was just very, very odd, I thought. And there were sort of theories that maybe it was linked to things he'd written in the snooker scene. We've never, we never really got to the bottom of it, but anyway, that, that was that, and... Uh, I spoke to Clive actually a couple of days ago. He's uh, he, he, he's not uh, in the best sort of mobility because he had a fall last year, and obviously he's had to shelter at home anyway because of his age during the pandemic. But he's okay in himself and still still watching everything. Um, James Cook uh, still in America, um, mm. which which is where he lives. So I suppose you've got every right to be. Mm. Um, he says uh, the now it's recently announced that um, there's going to be two tour cards for players from the women's circuit. So um, in line with for example, the Oceania circuit, the Americas, and so on and so on. Uh, they're going to award wild cards, and Rian Evans and Onyi are going to have the first um, the first one. Obviously, there hasn't been any, any actual snooker for the women's circuit for, well, over a year now, since before the pandemic. But anyway, this is going to happen from next season. James Cook writes, the awarding of tour cards to Rian Evans and Onyi announced on International Women's Day has sparked some debate, to say the least. Should they have to earn their tour places like everyone else, except Stephen Hendry, who you could argue has earned it via Q School, or should they get an automatic tour place? Interested in, on your thoughts on this. For what it's worth, I think it's a great move and a step in the right direction. Let's face it, it's a sport dominated by men and must be very difficult for women to break in. So given those existing hurdles, I do think that both players have earned their place on the tour, and I hope they flourish and encourage more women to get into the sport. Any man who disagrees... He's speaking from a position of male privilege and whilst entitled to an opinion, may not be the best informed. Anyway, as ever, keep up the good work. It's a highlight of my week. Cheers from a snowy Colorado. It's always nice to know uh, mm. what, the, what the weather's doing, where James is. Yeah, I mean, it, inevitably, if you go online, opinion is divided and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I think a lot of issues these days, people seem more interested in kind of almost, and we saw this definitely during the whole Brexit thing, labelling the people on the other side as being something rather than actually just discussing the issue. So let's just discuss the issue. To me, you can argue, I think, very um, um, persuasively that it should all be based on ability. But to me, ability is based on opportunity. Very often that's to do with geography. In the case of the women's game and women in snooker, though, very often it's just the case that they haven't actually had the same playing opportunities. One of the reasons for that is that historically snooker clubs are certainly not the sort of place where you would drop your daughter off for the evening, you know, and leave and leave her there. Hopefully things have changed on that score, but I think, you know, historically 
that's kind of been the case. Um, we've, uh, one, one thing I will say, though, is actually I don't want this just to be men deciding what's best for women again. So any sort of female listeners in particular do get in touch and let us know what you think. And indeed, Maisie Hunspal has done that, and she uh, she expresses her approval as well. And we'll get to the rest of your email uh, later on, Maisie. Um, so, uh, yeah, as I say, they haven't just been handed wildcards. It's linked to their circuit. And I think the idea is to try and build up participation, because that's what's been lacking. Um, women can play on the professional circuit. It's not a men's circuit. But they have their own circuit. They have a, about 150 players. The standard is not particularly high. They only play against each other. So Rianne Evans is the best player there, but she's not really going to improve playing other women. She hasn't yet reached a level to compete regularly with the men, although she has had some good results. She beat, I think, Robin Hull in the World Qualifiers, obviously ran Sean Murphy very close uh, in the Champion of Champions. But I go back to what I say. It's, it's fine to say it should be based on ability, but ability is based on opportunity. Now, you look at the Q school, we like to think two people each turning up with a queue, they're on a level playing field, but clearly that's not the case. And as I say, very often it's based on geography. If you've grown up all your life in, let's say, uh, let's say Leeds, okay, you've got the Northern Snooker Centre, you've played there every day of your life, you've got their whole structure, their competition structure, coaching, you're at a clear advantage to someone who comes from a background where they haven't had that. You both turn up at queue school with a queue, but one of you has got a massive advantage. Now, in Britain, historically, and in other parts of the world, as I say, snooker clubs haven't been welcoming for women. Rebecca Kenner, who's uh, one of the top female players, she has not been able to play in her league side because there have been various venues that still don't admit women. <laughs> so there's been league fixtures that she can't play in. So I guess this is a way of trying to slightly even the playing field and just give opportunity. And to me, they're not taking away anyone else's places. If you are good enough, eventually you will make it, no matter where you come from, if you've got the drive. But this is a way, I guess, of just trying to even the playing field. And also, and I think this is possibly even more important to, in terms of the reason why it's been done, commercially, it will actually potentially be um, quite important because it guards snooker against accusations, and they're wrong accusations, but accusations that it's all just sexist and we don't let women play. It's never been true. Uh, but also, if one of them does well, or going down the line in the future, if someone comes along in the next sort of decade and does well, can't see how that can't be good for snooker. So personally, I've got no problem with it. It is, to me, like giving tour cards for an amateur circuit, of an overseas circuit. It's another way onto the tour. <laughs> Ultimately, it depends on results. If they don't do well, you know, they'll drop off. Well, that's the thing. And I think a lot of people have sort of missed the point here. I, I think some people who perhaps aren't, you know, particularly well informed about it, think that now they're going to see Rianne Evans and Ung On Yi playing on television all the time and playing in the big events and playing in the Masters and at the Crucible. And it's not really going to be that way. I mean, now that they're on the circuit, they're going to have to actually win some matches to get into that situation. And I mean, Rianne was given, this isn't a sort of unprecedented thing at all because Rianne was given a wild card to play on the tour 11 years ago. Now, I'm only stating a fact when I say she played in 18 events and lost in the first round of all of them. And also the fact that ever since then, and indeed for some years before then, she's been trying to earn her place on the circuit through the Q school and has never actually managed to do it. Now, none of that is to be disparaging to her, but it's to say that if she hasn't been able to win matches, a sufficient number of matches at that level, uh, which is effectively the amateur level to get onto the tour, you would have to wonder how she can hope to do it on the professional tour. So it may well be a case that they go on and we just don't see them very much. There is the possibility they may end up being put on the match table early on, but if they're playing top players, 
um, regularly and getting beaten heavily, well, that's not going to do anyone much good. And they might just be relegated back onto the back tables again. So I think, you know, we'll wish them all the best. But I think there's a lot of assumption about how they're going to do. But I think history would suggest that, bearing in mind, Rianne's been trying to play her way onto the circuit. She's in her mid-30s now. She hasn't managed to do it. It would be unprecedented for her at that age coming from that position to go and make much of an impact on the professional circuit. But we'll see. They're, they're going to be playing. Well, Ongon Yi isn't playing in the world qualifiers, I don't think. I assume that's to do with um, travel reasons. Yeah. But uh, Rebecca Kenna, who you mentioned there, who was the victim of an extraordinary injustice in the shootout a few <laughs> weeks ago that people might remember. I mean, that was really bad what happened there. Um, we'll see how they get on in that. I mean, obviously it helps them that it's best of 11 and you know they're probably going to be playing players who are you know, a good deal better than them because, you know, they're there because they've, you know, achieved it on the world rankings or whatever. Best of 11 perhaps gives them more of a chance to do it. So we'll see. We'll see how they get on. But like I say, I mean, you can only point to the realities that Rianne was given a place on the tour before and didn't actually manage to win any matches. And I say that not in relation to the merits or otherwise of her doing this, but just to underline how hard it's going to be for her. Oh, definitely. Yeah, it's going to be tough because it is tough. I mean, the circuit's difficult for everyone. But on that kind of results argument i would bring in the name amina miri now this is the lad from morocco he got on the tour a couple of years ago this is last year clearly he's not of the standard that you need to be yeah. to, to do well but i was told uh what snook was saying that their um facebook followers from from morocco itself and north africa in general have gone up in the tens of thousands since he started so he has created some interest in a part of the world where there wasn't very much and that's the point it's not necessarily just about having the best 128 players on the circuit, because that in itself is misleading. As I say, how can how can 80% of the tour be British and claim to be the best in the world? They're the best in the world because the circuit's based in Britain. You know, if the circuit had been based in South America for the last 40 years, 80% would be from South America. You know what I'm saying? So it's a way of extending opportunity. Amina Miri clearly is not going to win the World Championship, but maybe in 20 years' time, you know, that we'll see an effect from his participation on the tour in North Africa. We'll see. It's very difficult because it's a difficult game. And I do think the, the big problem, leaving aside the sort of uh, the women's side of it, is just the, the infrastructure in a lot of these places. How do you get as good from a young age as the great champions have done if you don't have the infrastructure? WP would say doing their best on that. And they're doing some good work as well, it should be said. Um, I wish Rianne and, and Onye all the best uh, for their time on the tour. Now, I mentioned Maisie Huntspell, and uh, she is... Um, Maisie has brought us some news from the Pro Series, um, which... Uh, are you still there, by the way? Yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry, I thought, I thought I'd lost you. Uh, <laughs> I'm just so engrossed in what you were saying, Dave. I know. She's brought us some breaking news from the Pro Series tour, um, not on television. Uh, I'm not saying it's like, uh, below the radar, but they're actually they're thinking of using it for the Witness Protection Program, this event. No, I'm joking, I'm joking. It's good for low-ranked players, I think. Uh, we saw yesterday Ben Hankorn won the group, Ronnie O'Sullivan was in, great for him. Um, they're not just turning up, losing to a top player going home. They get seven matches. I guess the shorter format maybe favours them, although a lot of top players have got through. Anyway, Maisie saw a very interesting incident. She says, I was quite surprised to hear the referee tell the players they needed to speed up their shot times during a match between Sahil Vahidi and Lucas Kleckers in the Pro Series. they just played a frame lasting nearly an hour, but I didn't realise referees could tell players to speed up. Is that due to the round-robin format of the tournament and the amount of matches they need to fit in? Does it happen often? Be great to hear your thoughts on this. Well, we're going to invoke our friend, our favourite player, very shortly, Fergal, um, on this mm. because this happened in famously. No, there's a people talk about sort of slow play and so on, but there's actually a rule in it, it's in the rules time wasting. And if, in the referee's opinion, 
a player or both players are taking too long, they can advise them to hurry up. That's 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 within the rules. It's happened a few times down the years. I believe Brendan Moore, according to the order of play, was the referee here. Brendan, you know, he's a very, you know, good referee and a pretty pretty tough one. And if he felt they were taking inordinate time on on shots that didn't need it, it's different if you're in a snooker or there's a tough safety. But if you're just, you know, in and around the black spot and you're taking forever, I think the referee's entitled to actually say, come on, what, what are you doing? But of course, well, that, I mean, Not only yeah. entitled, I mean, in a sense, he's obliged to, yeah. because that's, that's what you're supposed to do. If you feel a player is taking an inordinate amount of time, that's your job. That's what you're meant well, to do. two incidents spring to mind. Yeah. Um, another very tough referee, possibly the toughest, John Williams, yeah. at the Crucible. So this is 1989, quarterfinal, Tony Mio, Dean Reynolds. They'd already played the British Open final a few weeks earlier, which wasn't any good, um, which Mio won. And this match wasn't any good either. But what was controversial was Williams only only warned Dean Reynolds. Um, and indeed, Mio won the match and Reynolds afterwards burst into tears in the press conference because um, he felt he'd been sort of singled out. And then we go to the Nations Cup. Uh, I'm just going to say 2001, I guess. And you'll be right, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the final, was it Ireland-Scotland, I think? It was, yeah. Now, it, it was on ITV, but it was on network ITV. And there was, some, there was another programme on. It may have been football or something. I think but, it was the FA Cup, yeah. Yeah. So the final was wasn't dragging on, but it was quite close. Um, Fergal was playing one of the frames, and the referee Alan Chamberlain said to him, "Come on, Fergal, hurry up! TV goes off in half an hour." Now it's not the most tactful mm. thing to say. Obviously, this is in front of an audience as well. Everyone heard it, and Fergal, you can imagine. I mean, what what he thought about? Um, again, the referee's entitled to ask a player to hurry up, but maybe there are ways of doing it. I suppose is the point. Um, mm. I, to me, I think. Personally, I, I always think it should be between frames. I'm not a referee. It's not for me to say. But I think it should be done tactfully, not just don't just sidle up to someone as a down on a green and say, by the way, you need to hurry up. Uh, but, yeah, that, I hope that answers your question, Maisie. They're allowed to do that, the referees. And, and as you say, they're kind of obliged to if the, if the, the take, yeah. players are taking time for no reason. Yeah. Actually, I don't think it was the FA Cup. I think that was the uh, Nations Cup final a couple of years earlier where they actually went off to go and show an FA Cup match and then basically came on after it and just showed the last couple of shots of the final. Uh, I agree with you entirely. I think between frames is the time to do it. And the Mio Reynolds thing, I mean, like Reynolds, as far as I recall, it had the momentum. He was in play on a break at that time. This is massive. This is a chance to get to the semi-finals of the World Championship. Uh, and, you know, I, I think he, he had a bit of a case about that. The thing that's never really said about that is that um, that afternoon before play started, they had done a feature about slow play on the BBC. <laughs> right. And Eddie Charlton, I remember, was being in the studio. Now you can imagine what his What would he know about it? Yeah, well, this, it? Oh, he was so defensive. He was like, I don't want to see any rules coming in. And John Virgo, who uh, was he wasn't chairman of the WPBSA, yes. Oh, no, he was, actually. He would have been in 1989, wouldn't he? So it was basically uh, whoever the presenter was, John Virgo as chairman and Eddie Charlton. And Eddie got very, very riled up about it. He didn't want to see any measures being brought in about slow play whatsoever. He even maintained he wasn't a slow player. And John Virgo actually kind of slapped him down and said, well, you know, oh. we, we know you are, Eddie. Well, but, he uh, do, well, he do, well, that's the thing that he does know. He knew from first hand because... Of course he did. And <laughs> Phil, no, but here, no, but here's the thing. And, and Phil has told this story many times, Phil Yates... It was that so earlier that year. We're talking about 1989. They played at the European Open in Deauville. Um, I think it was quarterfinal, and you know Eddie was taking his time, but the, he was winning. I think he won the match quite easily, and he was clearing up in the last frame. He's one of these where he's like 70 odd in front, but he's going to doggedly try and pot every ball, and he's you know going around and walking around the table and taking forever. Eventually clears up, turns around 
to shake Virgo's hand, he'd gone. <laughs> John Virgo oh, gone. Yeah. See, yeah, seen, enough, see, seen enough, ref. Yeah. So probably a bit of spillover from that. <laughs> but, but, but also, as well, I mean, you, you, you do have to wonder, had they not been having that discussion uh, on the BBC that afternoon, would that have been in John Williams' head? Well, this is the problem. Well, this this will tie into something we'll talk about later on, which is how the game has been run. Because, of course, it's a good point to make. If the players who are running, if the people running the sport are also players who are playing in a tournament, you're going to be influenced by what they say. Because a referee, I'm not saying John Williams couldn't stand up for himself because he could, but in general, those guys were kind of under pressure to take heed of these sort of things. So maybe it did. It has to be said, though, my memories of the match, it was pretty slow. I'm not saying Reynolds was any slower than Mio. Mm. Um, maybe that was what John should have done. He should have worn them both. I mean, but yeah, that's the call he's got to make, I suppose. Well, to pick up on, on the point you're making there, there was an even more obvious example of that when you talk about people being involved in running the game. The World Championship quarter final 2005, Ronnie O'Sullivan against Peter Ebden. Now, Ebden was on the board at the time. <laughs> and uh, Co- Colin Brindon, who sadly died only a few months later, actually, uh, was refereeing the match. And I mean, look, we can never know for certain. Ebden denies that he was deliberately slowing it down. I don't know anybody in the game who agrees with him about that and accepts that. It really did look like he was deliberately slowing it down to a ridiculous level. And people felt that Colin should have warned him about that. It was also suggested at the time, rightly or wrongly, that perhaps if it wasn't for the fact that Ebden was a board member, maybe there would have been a warning. I spoke to Colin about it the next day and said, look, you know, what's your view on this? I mean, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't recording it. I didn't use it in any stories or anything. But he maintained, no, I think that's just Peter's pace of play. And if someone is playing at their natural pace of play, then you can't warn them for it. It's when you feel they're slowing it down deliberately that that's when you're meant to warn them. And I don't know, maybe in the case of Ebden, I think a lot of people felt perhaps that he was. In the other cases, I don't think they were at all. I don't think Reynolds was deliberately slowing it down. I certainly don't think Fergal O'Brien was. It was just their natural pace of play. But you see, it's funny that we talk about slow play now when it's not really that much of an issue anymore because there are a few players on the tour who are quite slow. They're not prominent players who you see playing on TV very much. It's definitely less of an issue now than it's uh, ever been before. And I think the reason they were talking about it in 89, bizarrely, was because a campaign had been launched, I think the day before, um, to clamp down on slow playing golf. And I think it had been launched by Dennis Thatcher. And they, they showed a picture, a picture of him with a golf club in his hand and then decided to talk about slow playing snooker off the back of it. And you just have to wonder how different things might have been if they hadn't run that feature. It might not have been in John Williams's head. He might not have warned Dean Reynolds and he might have got to the semi-final of the World Championship, which so, he never so did ba- any other time. So basically, it's another thing we can blame Thatcher for is what you're saying. Um, well, you can say that. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, uh, we, we mentioned Fergal there. Um, Matt Tarrant has been going back listening to all the podcasts from, from day one. Um, mm. I'm, I'm guessing he's furloughed. Uh, and he, uh, so he asked me, he said, how, how long do you reckon it took on the first podcast, which was me and Clive back in 2015, to mention Fergal? And apparently it was, fi- <laughs> apparently it was 53 seconds. So the, the clues were there from the start. I think what had happened was you'd interviewed him for the oh, magazine. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And we, yeah, discussed, yeah. we discussed the interview. So, yeah. um, that would be right, yeah, because that was I did that interview with him, I think, two thousand and fifteen. Yeah, that's when yeah. we did it. Right, okay, there we go. Uh, just a final thing on the on the slow play. I remember European Masters a few years ago. Marcel Eckhart warned Anthony McGill, and at the time I thought he was right. I thought McGill he, again not do, he wasn't doing it deliberately, but he just got into that kind of brain freeze mode where he was taking too long, and it actually wasn't helping him. 
But of course, what Marcel got was was absolute pelters online from people saying, "Who do you think you are?" You know, and all this. Well, who who do you think he is? The referee, and it's his his job and his discretion if he feels he has to step in. And we, there's actually a question coming up about referees. But you know, the top level referees they know the rules inside out and they know the game inside out. And it may seem controversial when it happens, but they have a right to do it. I guess, as he, as we say, it's just just how they do it. Now then, there's potential here for another new feature actually, which is. Listeners who email us who share the names of people of players who played at the Crucible, okay? <laughs> okay. Because we have we have an email here from Jack Fitzmorris, right? Oh, now, brilliant! Now Jack himself may not know that there was a Jack Fitzmorris who played snooker. He was um, from the West Midlands, actually. Uh, played at the Crucible, I think once. Played Kirk Stevens, I think. Um, his question is this: I was wondering in some tournaments, how come you never see a session that's best of thirteen or fifteen? Surely in some tournaments, like the Players' Championship, it could start as a best of eleven. And gradually move up until the final was best in 19. I would like your thoughts on this. Uh, one, oh yeah, so yeah, well, it has happened that here and there. Uh, best of 13, so that's first to seven. Uh, there was a UK championship where they, as a sort of compromise between best of 17 and best of 11, in the early rounds, they had best of 13. They might only have done this once. But what, what you found is because it's one session, it's actually a really long match. You know, certainly early on, the standard's not necessarily going to be great. Can drag on a bit. They did it. Uh, for the uh, Champions Cup final, the old Champions That's Cup, right, yeah. but of course, but of course, they were all top players, so that was uh, that was okay. I found one Masters final that was best of 15, first to eight. Let's see if you know which one it was actually. But one one Masters final that was first, first to eight. To eight. Mm. Yeah. Well, it was definitely one of the very early ones. Yeah. Was it the first one in '75? No, it was uh, 1979. Perry Mans beat right. Alex Siggins eight four. Um, I don't know why. Okay why it had been decided that it would be first to eight. That is true. That's a, that's the a sort of distance you don't really see. Well, there was another tournament, actually. The um, Well, it, had, it changed its name about three or four times. It, it at various times was called the Carlsberg Challenge, mm. the Carling Champions, and the Foster's Professional for its last staging, which was actually won by Mike Hallett. That used to have a, a best of 15 final. So seven in the first session, eight in the second. I think best of 13, it's too long for one session. Best of 11, I mean, even if it's pretty quick, can take a very long time, but it's manageable. But best of 13, I think, is a bit too much. Of course, we had this, didn't we, a couple of years ago when they introduced best of 21 for the um, final of the of the China Open, uh, well, which is still technically the distance for that final, if you know, whenever we actually get to play that tournament again. But I guess it, it, best of 21, nobody had ever really thought it made sense because that would mean having 10 frames in the first session and 11 in the second. But well, I guess what, if you're having best of 11s all the time, well, why not do that? What annoyed me, and it shouldn't have done because it's completely a ridiculous thing to be annoyed about, but the mid-session interval, the key word here is mid-session interval, was still taken after four frames. Well, if it's <laughs> if it's a 10-frame session, sure, anyway. Um, now, we spoke there about Perry Manns, and we got an email actually from James, James George about Perry Manns. He said, I was listening to your latest podcast, an email from Barry about players making centuries. According to Q-Tracker, Perry Manns only made one century in a tour- in tournament play, although it was in 1946 when he was six years old. So he wouldn't have had one as a professional, even though he was number two in the world and was in the top 16 for six seasons. Well, I, I, I kind of, and nobody bows before Q-Tracker more than me. I think it's a fantastic resource. I think this was Peter Manns, who was Perry's father. So oh, I think yeah, yeah. A slight confusion there. Um, and actually, I think he was sometimes referred to, was he, as Pierre Manns? Yes. It's basically the same letters as Perry but in yeah. a different order, so you can see how there'd be a mix-up. Well, put it this way, if, he, if Perry Manns had made a century at the age of six in a tournament, he certainly would have made some when he was older. I don't know, I mean, I can only go on the information that's available. I don't know if he did or not. He was a very, as we said this before, he was a very kind of distinct player. He was both 
a fantastic potter and a bit of a spoiler. It's a strange combination. He would like sort of pot a few football, say, pot another few. Um, very different way of playing. He was effective. He was in the world final. He won the Masters, as we've mentioned. Um, but listen, if he's not listed on Q Tracker, then you know there's there's no would appear there's no sort of uh, they're like the dental records, aren't they, Q-Track? You know, if it's not there, it's not anywhere. Mm, no, indeed. Yeah, we never really hear anything about... We, we hear his name mentioned a lot, Perry Mans, but you would think, you know, he was in a world final. You'd think he'd be a bit more prominent. He's not even that old. He's, I think he's only about 80. Here's the thing. Did he come... Actually, you might not have been there, so but I assume you were watching on television. The Masters in 1998, when they had that parade of yeah. past champions. I think he was there for that, actually. He was definitely there, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's probably the last time we heard from him. Now we're, we're you know we've been talking about stuff, but we're building up now to the the big issue that you know that people are when they want to hear our opinions. You know we're not we're not going to shirk. We're going to we're going to address it straight on. So Lee Wall has written. He said, "Was there any particular reason the referees wore wore colourful jackets at the Crucible in the early days? When did they switch back to the regulation black?" Well, <laughs> Lee, I mean you've you've exploded a, a hot potato there. Um, if you can if you can DJ explode hot potatoes there. Yeah. Um, the honest answer is I don't know. I assume that the uh, the waistcoats were kind of linked to the sponsors, I guess. Um, so I think certainly the, the embassy in the 80s, you'd see referees sometimes in sort of uh, red sort of or dark sort of reddish jackets. I remember that they used to wear yellow jackets at times. They wore rosettes at times. Um, I guess, like anything, just sort of fashions change. And maybe it was felt at some point we should just put them in traditional black. They're there to do a job. They're not they're actually there to stand out. Uh, they're there to do a job. They look smart in the in the sort of very formal wear. Um, of course, in recent events, you know, sometimes they've worn sort of t-shirts and so on. They don't. All, it's not always a great look, I think, for a referee. I think the referee should. They're effectively the policeman, aren't they, or the or policewoman of the game, um, and they should maybe sort of dress appropriately. But um, yeah, so that's not really an answer. But you're right. They they did used to wear colourful attire. Someone's had a job lot, haven't they, in Sheffield Market? You know, there's been a panic the day before one of the early Crucible championships and they've had to go and buy a load of jackets and this was all they could find and got them for, I don't know, 15 shillings or whatever it would have been in those days. Uh, if you remember the mid-90s, actually, if you watch anyone presenting sports or anything really on television in the mid-90s, there was a whole range of colours you used to see. Like you'd see orange jackets and sort of a purpley, whiny sort of colour as well. It's funny they never interfered with the the referees' clothing as much because we've talked about this in the early 2000s when... There were all kinds of mad schemes thought up to change what the players were wearing. It's funny, they basically left the referees alone. I remember Paul Collier, uh, one of the very best referees we've ever had and still very much involved in the game. And he's done some pool refereeing as well. And I remember him talking about one tournament where he was wearing kind of a, a polo shirt, which was stripy, and the big white gloves. And he said, you know, when he looked back and saw himself, he thought he looked like Mickey Mouse. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's, it's, like it's one of those things again. I mean, people talk about the dress codes basically, when there's no snooker on. And then, you know, yeah. when the matches start, people just kind of forget about it. They had the rosettes, didn't they? Yeah. The, uh, the, the Fred Davis century that we've, yeah. we've seen a number of times. I think the referee is wearing a massive rosette. It looks like, you know, someone had it on FA Cup final day. Well, this next issue is sort of referee-based. It's from Donald Seaman. He says, I'm a listener in Omaha, Nebraska, USA. Question on rules and sportsmanship. If a player is snookered in such a way that it's physically impossible to, to escape, can they simply concede the frame or must an escape attempt be made? And if you see an opportunity to put someone in such a snooker, would it be considered bad sportsmanship to go for a win by concession or is all fair in love and snooker? Uh, he, he, he lists quite an involved uh, example, but I, I suppose it, an obvious example would be, let's say, um, 
let's say you're on the yellow and somehow the cue ball ends up in the jaws of the green pocket with the green directly in front of it. So there's literally no way of escaping other than to just play the in-off. Uh, he says, I, Donald said, I grew up playing eight ball, nine ball and straight pool and even some three cushion billiards. But over the last 18 months or so, I've become enamored of snooker. I've subscribed to two streaming services, two podcasts and check Twitter every day for snooker. I, I love learning about the game and its characters. And your podcast is a highlight of my week. Thank you, Donald. Wow. Thanks, for your, thanks for your enthusiasm and easy manner in sharing your love of the game. I haven't played a frame yet due to COVID-19, but the biggest pool hall in our town has two 10-foot tables, so I'll be giving it a go as soon as I'm vaccinated. Sounds to me like Donald is going to go down there and start laying snookers that no one can get out of. Um, <laughs> but essentially, the, you, you, yeah, you play a shot. If it's, I mean, again, it comes down to the referee. They understand if a snooker is impossible to escape from. So you will play a shot. You don't concede the frame. Um, you would just attempt to escape. It wouldn't be called a miss if it's impossible to escape from. And then, the, you know, the player has the usual choice to do they put you in from where it is or do they play the, shot, the next shot themselves? Um, very rarely will you see a snooker that is literally impossible to escape from. I mean, you know, normally that can be difficult. And then, of course, there's grades of difficulty in terms of whether the referee will call a miss or not. To me, it should depend on what's actually on the table. It's different trying to escape when there's 15 reds on to when there's one on. Yeah. Um, but that's essentially it. So you will play a shot. You don't you don't uh, concede the frame. You you will play a shot and then the frame continues. How could you call a miss in that situation? I mean, you, you just you just couldn't. I mean, you'd basically have one attempt at it. You wouldn't get out of it. And I mean, you can't possibly call a miss. I would have thought. Here's yeah. the thing, though. School me on the rules here. I mean, you might know this. I mean, I have to admit I don't. OK, so you can't play a jump shot. You can't jump over no. an intervening ball. Right. But. Now, you, you may or may not know the answer to this. If you play a ball, and again, I don't even know physically how you'd manage to do this, but some someone with nine ball experience might manage to do it. If you played a ball off the cushion and then somehow made a jump over an intervening ball to then hit the object ball, is that a foul? I'm trying to picture what exactly. What exactly so what you hit, for example, you, you sort of make the red fly off the cushion over another ball. No, what you do it. No, so the the, the example you cited, yeah. where it's near the pocket. If you could, so, and and you can't. There's there's no direct route at all, even right. off a cushion to the object ball. But suppose you play away from the object ball. You, you mm-hmm. like, you know, rattle the ball off the jaws of the pocket, and either by luck or design, it jumps over the balls that are snookering you, and it hits the object ball. Is that a foul shot? It sounds to me like it is. The way you yeah. described it, I'd have to see it. But it sounds to me like it is. I'll. Uh... We'll have to ask some refs about this. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Well, we'll move on because we're slightly running out of time. But Kerry yeah. Rich, Kerry Richards. Now, Kerry Richards wrote not so long ago, making trouble about the, the colours of the balls, but has moved on to prize money at the recent Gibraltar Open. Uh, World Snooker will obviously have their reasons, but I thought the split of prize money was particularly unfair. Totally conscious that the focus should be on winning and not losing. However, to see the losers' prize money increase incrementally by only a thousand from the last 64 2000 to the semi-final 6000 seems disproportionate especially when the runner-up got 20,000 the fact that two losing semi-finals were both relatively unheralded players especially Stuart Carrington for whom this was only his second ranking semi-final made things worse yes each player won only 20 frames to get the last four but this was a tournament format they won five matches to get to that stage just a shame both players achievements were only worth six grand each I tend to agree um there's I'm sure it's very involved deciding prize funds um, it seemed like wading through glue to get, as you say, from 2,000 in the second round to only 6,000 when there's only four players left in the tournament. Um, and also, it kind of, 
it made that whole European bonus thing a little bit of a damp squib because it, it left literally only Trump and Selby because of the price structure able to win it. It wasn't like there were four or five players maybe going for it. Um, it's literally above my pay grade, obviously, this stuff. But it, 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 it did look a bit kind of restrictive to me, that whole prize fund. Yeah, I mean, I think with an event like that, one of the key considerations is to try and get the top players into it. And if they see, oh, £50,000 first prize, fancy a bit of that, that might make them more inclined to do it. Now, it, it probably is less relevant at the moment because I think most players now, because there's nowhere else to go and nothing else to do, are playing in pretty much everything anyway. And as you say, the European Series bonus uh, might be a factor in attracting players. The, the issue that a lot of people have, and I know a lot of players feel quite strongly about this, Whatever about the prize fund, okay, if you want to have the headline grabbing £50,000 first prize in an event like that, and even if you want to have a ranking system where the stature of a tournament in terms of its value for rankings depends on the extent of the prize fund, it doesn't have to be a direct £1 is one point system. So you could still have £50,000 for the winner, twenty for the runner-up, 6000 for the semi-finals, but maybe a more even split of the points in terms of the rankings. And I think a lot of players would feel a lot happier with it from that point of view. I know Joe Perry, I had a really lengthy and, you know, frankly, too in-depth conversation with him <laughs> one day about this. He, he feels very strongly about it. I don't think either of us has really, uh, has really recovered from the, from the chat we had about it. So I, I think, yeah, you, you can see the logic behind a, a, the, the stature of a tournament in terms of the rankings, depending on how much the prize money is. But you can do that without it being directly related so you could still have, I mean, obviously the winner is going to get the most points, but maybe not eight or nine times as many points as a player has got to the semi-final, even if that's the way the prize fund breaks down. Yeah, I don't disagree, disagree with any of that. We've had another email, uh, just moving on, about referees, actually. Steve Carter, he says, uh, quick question, I've become aware of the fact that Ben Wollaston's wife is a pro referee. Are there any rules stopping her refereeing Ben's matches? I don't see how a ref could affect a match either way, as it's possible in other sports. For example, a ref giving a dodgy penalty or not giving a blatant one. Thanks and keep up the great work. Thank you, Steve. Yeah, Tatiana is Ben's wife. Um, she's not allowed to referee his matches. It, nobody would think that she could, would do anything, obviously, to affect it. But it's just to take away any suggestion. And also, it's a bit uncomfortable, I would imagine, for Ben to be, oh, yeah. to be, to be refereed by his wife. That's just a weird dynamic, you know, um, and weird for the other player as well. So, I mean, there was a time when the sort of section of the draw he was in, maybe sort of the, the little quarter she couldn't referee. I'm not sure it's quite as strict as that, but... She won't referee him, no. I mean, that's that's just it would just be weird for everybody, um, and it seems entirely sensible. She's a fantastic referee, actually, Tatiana. I hope she's at the uh, the Crucible because she's very very good. I think. Well, wouldn't wouldn't it be fantastic? Of course, we'd never hear this story, but wouldn't it be great if you know, say, she she was refereeing one of his matches if she was allowed to, and it was on her birthday, and he was so wrapped up in preparing for the match that he'd forgotten it. So she's in a. <laughs> So I mean, that's a, that's, a, that's a screenplay right there. Definitely. Yeah. Well, you know, who who better to go yeah. off and write it? But yeah, uh, yeah no, you, you couldn't possibly have that. I mean, everyone would just feel so uncomfortable about it. We had this at the pro series, didn't we, with um, Oliver and Peter Lyons playing each other, and they talked about how uncomfortable that was. And Neil says it was absolutely horrible when he played his dad. I mean, you can multiply that several times over. Um, you know, if you had a situation where you were being refereed by your wife, the the thing I've, I raised this before. Um, the, the world final referee is generally named around about this time of year. But of course, they could never name her as the world final referee around now, because what happens then if Ben gets to the final? So I would imagine if her turn came and you look, if she keeps refereeing at that level long enough, her turn obviously will come probably sooner rather than later. They'd have to sort of make it a provisional decision. And then once Ben had been knocked out of the championship, 
uh, they would then announce it. You couldn't possibly announce in March she was going to ref the world final and then the possibility yeah. of, of having to drop her from it. Well, it's another, it would be another bittersweet moment, wouldn't it, if she's been told she's refereeing the final, yeah. looked forward to it for months, and then suddenly Ben somehow, you know, go, cuts th- sway through the field and denies her. Anyway, we'll, uh, we'll see if that happens or not. Danny Wright, he says, uh, Hi, guys, long-time fan. Listen to every podcast. Thanks for giving snooker fans a great podcast. Thank you, Danny. He said, I've heard you talk about the dark days for snooker when sponsors wanted to come by, prize money was reducing, and TV deals weren't happening. Why is this happening and could it ever happen again? Is it because of the characters in the game and how important is it for the game? There are big characters at the top of the sport. If we hit a five-year patch with no characters, could snooker survive without them? Is snooker safe? Interested to hear your views. I couldn't help thinking about Marathon Man, uh, where Lawrence, Lawrence Olivier is doing the dental thing on Dustin Hoffman and he keeps saying, is it safe? Is it safe? Anyway, that's not. I don't think that was in Danny's thoughts. Um, Here's the thing. I have yeah. to say this. That is the second time you've mentioned that movie on the podcast. Really? I, I have no idea what the context of the other one was, but you All definitely right. did it before. It's a great film, Marathon Man. It really yeah. is very, very good. Um, uh, anyway, uh, I'm not Barry Norman. Um, all, all the references are so old, aren't they? We need to need to update them. Mark Kermode. There we go. Um, anyway, no, it's nothing to do with characters, I don't think. I mean, obviously, listen, there's no doubt that... Um, People are attracted by, you know, personalities. But the reason that snooker, I mean, okay, when professional snooker kind of hit the big time, it was really by luck and by chance. And there was no structure, proper structure to deal with it. It was a it was a gentleman's club. It was a members club. It was run by players. They literally would, there was a committee of players who would admit other players. And if your face didn't fit, you wouldn't be allowed to play. It was that restricted. And that kind of never properly changed. Now, in the 80s, it wasn't a problem because sponsors were queuing up to sponsor snooker. Um, there were various kind of problems that came along with the fact that uh, the players running the game, we've already talked about this a little bit, would, you know, there'll be clashes in other areas. There'll be clashes with rules and disciplinary. There'll be clashes with commercial instincts uh, over what players wanted. There were endless AGMs, EGMs, chairmen were voted in and out. They were snooker people. They weren't bad people, but it was just not a good structure. And eventually, of course, what happened was the honeymoon ended. Snooker continued at the top level on, on BBC and other broadcasters and, you know, was still very popular. But sponsorship started to dry up. Tournament started to dry up. And into this came Barry Hearn. And he said, I'm not going to take over if the WPBSA isn't reformed. We need to separate them out. So we need to have a commercial body, strictly commercial body, World Snooker Limited, which is what he runs now. World Snooker Tours it is now. And the WPBSA is, does everything else. And what's actually happened since then is the two bodies have thrived in their own way. WPBSA is good, do good work in the grassroots and the very structures in the sport. And World Snooker under Barry, as we know, has been fantastic. You know, more tournaments than ever. Um, and actually, what you describe as characters are able to come to the fore more. So I don't think it's anything to do with that. I think it's to do with just the way the game was run and it's run better now. There's no politics or certainly nothing like there used to be. When when I started, basically every other week, you know, someone was out to get someone. It was pretty febrile stuff. That's all gone away now. People are just concentrating on actually what they should be doing, doing their jobs and contributing to, to the professional game. Every, everything was political at that time. You and I both started working on the circuit around the same time. And you'd be in the press room some days and you'd go out of the room just to you know, go to the bathroom or whatever. You'd come back a few minutes later and, you know, you'd find someone had been banned or served with a writ or something while you'd been out. Or, or there'd just been some lesser incident that had changed the atmosphere. Someone had come in and had a row or whatever. And, you know, it really was awful. And, and it was holding the game back. I mean, in terms of the sponsors, there were times when it felt like they were doing their best to keep the sponsors away. 
Highland Spring, really big company who later became so associated with Andy Murray. And they were associated at the time with a lot of the top snooker players. They were going to sponsor one of the ranking events. They never even got as far as the first year of it because they pulled out because <clears> there had been some row and some disagreement with, with World Snooker. Um, you told the story a while ago about you know some sponsor going to um, a, a yes. WPBSA employee's house and Guinness. they arranged yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. They, this, this practical joke that backfired spectacularly, so they pulled out. <laughs> I remember that there was another time, I think we got wind of this, that they've been writing to potential sponsors. And one of the things they wrote in, oh, here's the package. Here's what you get for your sponsorship. One of the things they said was two tickets to the final of your tournament. <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> You know, talk about not really getting the point. Well, the other thing as well is, you know, another way that the, the game was shooting itself in the foot was the crowds. I mean, there was around that era that we're talking about when we had all the politics going so badly. The crowds were dwindling dreadfully at tournaments. And it was because people didn't know the tournaments were on. There was nothing being done to market them properly. So you're turning on the TV and you're seeing just practically empty arenas. And it was funny when I spoke to Barry Hearn when he'd been chairman for 10 years, I did a piece with him for the magazine. And it was interesting because I felt that was a major issue. And that was the first time I became aware that when he took over, he saw it as a major issue as well. And it was one of his first priorities to make sure, listen, we're going to sell these tickets properly. We're going to market these tournaments properly. And I heard stories of him ringing up. WPBSA or World Snooker staff on a daily basis saying, how many tickets have you sold yeah. now for this tournament? Go and sell some more. And I think that was a big factor in turning things around as well. Sorry, you were going to say something there in the middle. No, no, just, just very briefly, because uh, I worked briefly for the WPBSA um, and there was a sort of head of sponsorship guy there and he had an assistant and I hadn't seen this other guy for weeks and I said, I said to the head of sponsorship one day, I said, you know, where is he? And he said, oh yeah, he's out and about. Um, it's very vaguely out and about. Um, and but all the posts that had been delivered from it piled up on his desk, and eventually they they sort of started to clear it away, and they they found his resignation letter on on his desk. It had just yeah. been piled up under all the other stuff. So that was that was how they used to do sponsorship back then. I want to move on to uh, Ray Morgan. Um, Ray says, "Why so much?" We were talking about the one four sevens last week. He says, "Why is there so much credence given to pockets being templated?" The whole idea with templates is you get uniformity. However, the way the rubber is cut on the entrance to pockets and the fall of the pocket creates anomalies. This seems to defeat the object. Both these, both these things should be replicated as close as possible each and every time for all tables in all tournaments. We don't want to have the degree of difficulty so severe as the Scottish Masters back in the day. They were brutal. But they must be more of a test than they are now. Nowadays, there's an array of shots that can be played really hard and still go in. And we can plainly see how far the balls are hit up the cushion yet go in. 147 is an achievement in whatever circumstances, but some are easier than others when you factor in these anomalies. We all know that top professionals are highly skilled and will be able to pop the balls even if the pockets were a little more exacting. But this current trend is allowing the lesser skilled players to do the same. And that sort of demeans the skill level that comes with years of study and practice. A lot of the time we're being told one thing and yet we can plainly see something else. It's not a good look for the sport. At the risk of repeating myself, I'm with Neil Robertson, who says the pockets have been big for two or three years now. And Graham Dot says the pockets are too big for professional play. Well, it's interesting you say that, Ray, because I did a thing um, at the Players' Championship. I had to do a, a thing for uh, with Rob Walker on ITV. And we did it. He stood at the yellow pocket and I stood at the green pocket. And I looked at the green pocket and my word, it was tight. It, it was really tight compared to all the uh, snooker tables I've seen down the years, just in clubs and whatever. I thought, how do they put anything into these? Um so I don't agree the pockets are too big. The template has never changed in the last 30 years. Obviously, the, the different tables have come along, so the different makes of tables, and inevitably different people put them up. You're right, there will be a slight difference, just sort of just on a human level in terms of the slight cut of them and, and, and so on. Um, but 
here's a question: If the pockets are so big, why why do people miss? Surely they should play everything, shouldn't they? Yeah. Well, listen. You stand at one end of a tournament table, right, and stand say at the black end, and look towards the bulk end. You can barely even see the pockets. That's how tight they are. So, yeah, I certainly don't think they're, they're getting any bigger. Now, you have to take Neil Robertson seriously. I think he's a little better equipped to, to comment about these things uh, than we are. The whole business of how you cut the pockets and, you know, the rubber and everything. I remember one of the most surreal moments of my time in snooker was having Dominic Dale explain that to me over breakfast one morning using, I think, the salt and pepper to demonstrate his point. <laughs> but, um, yeah. All I'll say, because I know you've got to go shortly, but... There's quite a few people online who love to... There are balls that go in that look like they shouldn't. I completely do agree with that. And there's people who love to post clips of that online. Oddly enough, though, they never post clips of balls that look like they're going in and stay out. I don't think the pockets are too, uh, too big at all. I think... I'm not saying they're necessarily um, the right size, but I don't think they're too big. I think, yes, you see balls go in, but you see a lot missed, even by the top players. And if, you know, if they were that big, we'd see a lot more 147s than we do. I'm going to do one last email... It's from Matthew Tempest. He said, uh, very belated question for you from your episode a few weeks back on snooker myths. I've been watching a lot, and I mean a lot of 80s snooker during lockdown, and it's reinforced something I always somehow subconsciously felt to be the case. Back in the 1980s, players didn't simply tap the table on arrival to acknowledge a good safety shot from, from their opponent. I watched all, most of these matches live at the time, 30 years ago, and I'm now revisiting them, and I just haven't seen it. I could definitely have missed an example or a couple of examples, but not really more than that. It just didn't happen, or at least was very uncommon. So my question is, when did it arrive in the game and via whom? If I had to guess, I would say at some point in the 1990s, possibly via the the originator of the so-called Triple Crown, John Higgins. But uh, please see previous podcasts. Um, Mm. But this is a very vague guess. Can you help? In return, I can offer you a Twitter account I've created, celebrating both the players and the venues, presenters, set designs, sponsors and TV coverage from the 1980s. It's called Snooker from the Thatcher Era. And that's, oh, wow. And the, the, the uh, handle is at Snooker Era. That's at Snooker Era. Not really from any political bent, but because for me, the golden era TV snooker was 79 to 90. Um, so you can check that out. Uh, he says, many thanks for the podcast. The perfect accompaniment to cooking with a glass of wine. And I say that as someone who does not like or listen to any other podcast, just a snooker fan. All the best from Berlin, where in normal times I play at the club used by Simon Lichtenberg. I can assure you watching someone who's only number 98 in the world is light years away from watching the proverbial best player at your club only is in inverted commas in a rather ironic way. Um, you touched on something very interesting here, Matthew, which is the sort of excess of etiquette that's come, come into the game. You know, you're not just tapping the table. You now see people, you know, apologising for flutes and owning up now to fouls they haven't made. There's been two tournaments recently. Yeah, John right. Higgins. John Higgins owned up to a foul he hadn't made, and then Jimmy Robertson did it in the Gibraltar Open. Obviously, they thought they had fouled. Yeah. Um, but that's the state of the etiquette now. People are now... We always say it's nice when they own up to their own fouls. They're now owning up to fouls they haven't made. Um, I think players it, mimic each other. So I don't know who started this whole trend, but if one player does it, another player will do it. And certainly if they see a Ronnie or a Higgins or a Williams or whatever... Jimmy, whoever play they look up to doing it, they would do it. But you're right. And back in the day, in the 80s, when we were told it was all kind of fun and results didn't matter, my word, they were hard players. <laughs> they were. They were. And there's this notion that there was all camaraderie and they yeah. all had a drink together afterwards. Some of them did, but some of them, you know, you talk about rivalries. I mean, that they really did. And some of that um, was actually uh, came to the fore in that movie, The Rack Pack. And yeah. okay, now that was only based on on events, but some of what they portrayed in that was very, very real, and the rivalries got very serious. What I would say is the whole thing of tapping the table and that, um, I mean, that was around in the 80s. I definitely remember it happening. 
And um, one player I remember used to do it a lot was Jimmy, as you'd expect, because, you know, he's just such a sporting guy. And he used to actually sit, not even coming to the table. Um, if someone who was at the table was, you know, played a really good shot, great pot or whatever, Jimmy would actually sit tapping his leg in appreciation, even though he'd been kept in his seat longer. So it, it was it was around in those days, uh, for sure. Maybe just not to the same extent. I think the thing with flukes, they don't when they raise their hand, it's not an apology, it's just an acknowledgement. Okay, I, I accept that was that was fortunate. They don't have to do it. I don't I don't particularly think they have to do it. Um but you know, listen, it's good that we have this etiquette. I think it is I think everyone who plays in Liga recognises how difficult the game is and you know, they're all trying to win, of course they are, but it's uh it's still sort of retaining that, that sort of old gentleman's uh, sort of um sort of integrity, I suppose it had in a way. Um I'm I'm delighted to see your I did actually look at the Twitter account and it's uh, it's essentially it is sort of um, sort of stills of people like David Vine from the time and, and old sets and yeah if you if you're a snooker fan who remembers that time then uh, definitely check it out. I'm going to apologise to Jack Wilson. We haven't got time, Jack, to get to your email about Karen Wilson. We'll try and get to it in the near future. Now, of course, next week you will be at the Championship League pool, the first ever, mm, the inaugural, and that's on Free Sports, I believe. So uh, yeah, know. and so, Matchroom yeah. Live, I'm sure. Yeah, Mushroom Live have it as well. It's on various other channels around the world. So obviously Championship League Snooker has been going since 2008. We now have the first Championship League pool, which is run in a very similar format. Um, but the only really big, obviously it's different numbers of, well, racks as opposed to frames and a different prize money structure in that. Other than that, the only really big difference, well, there are two, I guess. One is that each group is played in a day because the matches are shorter rather than being spread over two days. And uh, the other one is only one player gets relegated at the end of each group. So it all adds up to 19 players and they'll be coming from over the world. They'll be members of the winning and losing Moscone Cup teams uh, from uh, last December in Coventry. There are three women in the field returning to uh, a theme we had earlier on. So that will all be starting on uh, next Monday, the 22nd for eight days. And as you say, it's all live on Free Sports. Yeah, and of course the Tour Championship will be live uh, Monday to Sunday on yep. ITV4, and then after that we'll go into, well actually the Championship League snookers after that, isn't it? But then after that we go uh, into uh, World Championship mode. Uh, now next week, uh, in your absence, I hopefully we'll have a special guest uh, lined up if I can sort that out. Um, in the meantime, you can email us at snookerscenepodcast, email us snookerscenepodcast at mail.com snookerscenepodcast at mail.com and uh, maybe throw it forward towards the World Championship. You know, who do you think is going to win? Uh, it's difficult when we're not at the draw yet, but um, we're sort of, t- we, our thoughts are turning as they do at the, in, the, in the early spring towards the Crucible and that's, uh, that suggests all is right with the world again, maybe. Um, so that's it, I think, for this week. Thanks for listening and as ever, our final words to you are goodbye-bye. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, 
even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.